Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Christina L. Sifra, MD, about the article, Transforming the Morbidity and Mortality Conference to Promote Safety and Quality in a Pediatric Intensive Care Unit, published in the January 2016 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Sifra is a pediatric intensivist and assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine in Iowa City, Iowa. Thank you for being with us today, Tina. Thank you very much for inviting me, Margaret. It's a pleasure to be here. Would you start by giving us some background to your study, how the M&M conference has been used, and what led to your institutions wanting to change the structure? Well, um, that's interesting because I actually came across this field of research because I was assigned to be the fellow administrator or coordinator for our M&M conference back when I was a fellow at Johns Hopkins. Literally, we drew straws to get to see who gets the conference. <laughs> and you got the and short one. <laughs> I got the short one, but it, it turned out to be a good one because from that stemmed a lot of the work that I did during that time and really awakened my interest in quality improvement and safety research. So I started looking into the M&M conference when we were thinking about revamping it, and I can talk in a little bit about why we did that. But traditionally, really, the M&M conference has been used in medicine for two purposes. One of the more common reasons is for house staff training. And the conference has been used more of a learning venue for this purpose, where we discuss unusual or interesting cases with complex diagnostic or management challenges. And I'm sure this is true for your institution as well. Sometimes it involves really long presentations. And when it's presented by trainees, it tends to be pretty dragging. Lots of discussion and blow-by-blow labs or, or events in the patient's course, discussions of pathophysiology or literature review, and autopsy results, which is a component of that clinical pathologic correlation that we value so much in medicine. So that's one purpose. Another purpose that it has been traditionally used for is for examination of individual failures, which is not a very noble purpose in my mind. I do think that this stems from the fact that the M&M was originally a surgical M&M to begin with. And you can imagine what that looks like. When I trained in medical school, the surgical M&M was conducted in a large amphitheater. The senior surgeons were in the front row, and there was this one poor surgical intern <laughs> presenting cases and getting grilled. Generally, it was more geared towards individual provider failings rather than system failures. And that, in my mind, is a big weakness of the conference because now we know that medical errors and patient harm is rarely as straightforward as one individual's issue. The M&M conference was not able to weave together the more comprehensive picture of how harm happens, and that's usually because of multiple systems interacting together leading to harm. So in that sense, the traditional M&M was used to improve care in a very roundabout way with the assumption that educating providers equals better care, which is not always the case. You also asked about how the M&M conference was revamped during the time that I did my work. Essentially, the biggest impetus for change was moving to a new children's hospital. And I know this has happened in a lot of institutions in the past few years. The trend really has been building these big standalone children's hospitals. Pittsburgh went through it. Michigan went through it recently. And then when I was a fellow at Hopkins, we moved to a nice, shiny, big unit from the old model of many beds in one room unit. So in the old unit, we were 
you know, the providers and the nurses and the RTs, we were all basically on top of each other. And all you needed to do was yell across the room and, you know, you communicate that way. A senior nurse can be stationed in one room and be able to supervise three nurses taking care of really sick patients. And that's how we made it work and that's what we were used to. But moving to a new unit, uh, uh, which was 40 beds, had individual patient beds and was literally a city block long, uh, posed a lot of problems to our workflow. There was more space for us, which also meant that it was more difficult for us to communicate. It took us a while to get used to communicating by the local phones that we used. There was less supervision for a lot of junior people. And of course, there were a lot of junior people because we had to hire new staff to be able to serve the increased number of patients that we had. The perception at that time was that things were falling through the cracks and that patient care was suffering. So the revamping of the M&M structure actually came from the front lines. It wasn't something that was handed down from administration. There was really a clamor for it, both from nursing and the physician side. And it was really only a part of a larger movement to improve safety in the unit. During that time, we also started a safety and quality group, and Jim Fackler was our safety director at that time. We had multiple projects, one of which is the the revamping of the M&M structure. So describe a systems-oriented morbidity mortality conference for us. How is that different from the sort of traditional conference that you described a few minutes ago? Yeah, so the systems-oriented M&M conference started to emerge during this past decade when the patient safety movement really came to the fore. It differs from the traditional one on three counts. It has a different function for sure, and this function is explicit to participants that the goal is to improve care by examining and addressing systems contributions to patient harm. So essentially, any systems contribution to any patient adverse event would be analyzed during the conference and ideally using a standard structured tool. The second difference is that the the structure of the conference itself and the process is different to serve the function that I just described. So it usually contains elements of medical incident analysis, and these elements are not new. This was put forth by James Vincent, and we use this all the time in root cause analysis in a lot of our institutions, except it's a more condensed version where the results are more immediate and you can discuss it much more consistently during conference. So some of these elements include eliciting input from staff involved in an incident. I think that's really useful since the perspectives really do differ depending on which side of the fence you're standing on. One incident can look different to a provider versus the pharmacist versus the nurse. So we thought that was really important to get all of these perspectives to count. Another element of medical incident analysis is using a structured framework to investigate the underlying contributions to patient harm. And I think this is very important, and I can talk more about this later, because it provides a consistent way of analyzing events, and it really holds us to account for most of the contributing factors to these events so that we can come up with appropriate solutions. And the most important element of medical incident analysis, in my mind, is assigning responsibility for follow-up and implementation of the interventions. A lot of the time, M&Ms can be more about lip service rather than actually doing what we said that we would do. So this element of follow-up is very important. And the third difference, aside from the different function and structure of the systems-oriented M&M compared to the traditional one, is that it's multidisciplinary. I don't think you can change the function in that way and change the structure without involving everybody involved in patient care. So it has to be multidisciplinary. 
How did your process change, and how did you implement this change structure, which is never an easy thing to do? Well, for my case, in, in this project's instance, it was easier because it came from, like I said, the front lines. It wasn't a project that was imposed upon us. It wasn't something that we needed to gather data for to fulfill some QI gathering, uh, data gathering mandate. What happened first was we sat down with a multidisciplinary group of representatives of all the disciplines that worked in our PICU, nursing, RT, ECMO, pharmacy, and we started brainstorming for what our M&M goals really are and what structure we think that would work for our setting. And with that, the process of selecting cases and presenting cases and how the follow-up would work. I think an important part of these early meetings is developing the conceptual framework of how we thought this intervention, the whole systems-oriented M&M, is going to contribute to the ultimate goal of improving the way we respond to adverse events and the number of interventions that we implement. Another important part is that we selected the structured tool that we would use to analyze the events, and that is the learning from defects tool, and I can talk about that later. After the, these meetings with representative people, then we started presenting the proposal to the staff for their education and also to try to engage people in the project. So we presented to all different groups in the PICQ. The biggest process change, I believe, after we've laid down the plan is the preparation for each conference. And this is really the bulk of the work, which was led by a multidisciplinary core group composed of a physician, nurse, and a pharmacist. So this group actively solicited cases for discussion. We didn't really have any set criteria, except that we wanted to discuss all mortality so that we're all discussed. Most of our cases were volunteered by the staff. That the, multi, the core group also identified presenters, which are mostly fellows, and we had decided that we wanted the fellows to present as part of their training. The core group also delineated necessary preparation tasks for each case, like each case differs from, from each other based on the adverse event that we're discussing. If it's something that involves a subspecialty service, then we needed to invite those people to M&M. We needed to get their input about the case. If it was something that involved equipment, then we needed to get maintenance personnel or, or engineering to come. And this core group also would work very closely with the fellow who was presenting the case and reoriented them through the M&M process and guided their review of the adverse event using the structured tool. So really, there, it's a lot of work by that core group, and that's the main change in the, in the process that we created, that there would be a core group to make sure that, you know, that M&M train just kept getting out of the station on time every day. <laughs> And the, the, the last piece of the, of the change in process is dissemination and follow-up, also led by the core group. An email summary was sent out after each conference so people who weren't able to attend can still get the pearls and the changes and the improvements that we had talked about and following up on assigned personnel for specific interventions. So it was a lot of work and it was constant because we had M&Ms every other week at that time. So after you finish one M&M, you have to start preparing for the next one, yeah. Yep. Tell us about the learning from defects tool you mentioned that a few minutes ago. 
So the learning from defects tool is only one tool that people can use to analyze adverse events with. Other more familiar tools may be a fishbone uh, diagram where there's a horizontal line and like fishbone sticking out of it, mm-hmm. looking at you know different factors, patients or mm-hmm. environment and things like that. There's also other tools like the mind map and other things that are in the literature. We decided to go with the learning from defects tool because it was familiar to us. So this tool is a one-page user guide to investigate defects in healthcare. Defects are really synonymous to patient harm or medical error. This was homegrown at Hopkins. Peter Pronovos led the group that developed this tool. And by the time that we were revamping our conference, it was already in wide use throughout our hospital. So we decided to go with it. Aside from familiarity, though, we liked it because it had a follow-up mechanism to ensure that the safety improvements are achieved. So the first part of the tool asks you what happened, and this is the part where we want to know about the circumstances surrounding the event. I like that part because it did away with the whole patient A was born on this date and (laughs) (laughs) the chief complaint is cough and, you know. Yeah. It did away with that because that wasn't our purpose. Our purpose wasn't to teach how to do a history and a physical. It did away with the tedious graphs of ABGs from day one until day 100. (laughs) It just really is a succinct description of a specific event that happened to a patient, whether that patient only stayed with us for two days or three months. And then the second part is asking, how did the event happen? And this is when the analysis of contributing factors come into play. The tool provides this very nice table of different factors that can contribute to an adverse event so that if you go through that little checklist, and Dr. Prunavos is very well known for checklists. Absolutely. (laughs) If you go through that checklist, it would be very hard to miss contributing factor. So we liked it because it made us look at the adverse event in a very consistent way. The third section of the tool is asking you, how can you prevent this from happening again? So this is when we list specific actions or interventions to address the contributing factors to reduce the likelihood of the same harm occurring again. So this is when we brainstorm and try to figure out what the appropriate interventions are. And then the fourth section is asking you, how do you know that the risk is reduced? And I think this is the unique part of this tool that is not really present in a lot of the other tools that are available. It actually urges you to see and measure something that would tell you that your intervention was successful or not. And I think this is really important because we have a lot of policies and procedures that are in place that we don't really know if it's making a difference or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this could be qualitative or quantitative. If it was an intervention to improve communication, then it could be a simple survey asking people if they feel communication is better. It could be quantitative if you set out to do an intervention that would decrease central line infections, then, the, then you have to answer that central line infections decrease. So I thought that was very useful. This is the format then that we use to present our cases. And we, we encourage the fellows to answer every question in the tool and then to serve as the scaffolding upon which the audience at the M&M conference will hang their own thoughts and, and suggestions as well. What data did you collect for this study that you reported in, in pediatric critical care? So we, we looked at our m M&M conferences over the span of a year and looked at 10 conferences before implementation of the systems-oriented M&M and 10 conferences after. 
I think we discussed 33 patients before and 31 patients after through these M&M conferences. We looked at meeting attendance, and um, that was one of our biggest changes. So we essentially doubled meeting attendance per conference after we implemented the intervention. We also looked at the number of cases suggested for discussion, which essentially didn't change, which is not surprising since we didn't really target case selection. We just let the staff continue to volunteer cases for discussion as what had happened uh, previously. We also looked at the number of cases that we discussed using the standard tool, the learning from defects tool. And here, I don't think we were as successful. Before, we used the tool 27% of the time. Like I said, it was already being used sporadically before we implemented the systems-oriented M&M. And afterwards, it was being used 45% of the time. However, we did discuss more adverse events. I think it was a 25% increase It was a 25% increase from before, but the real nice results was looking at the number of interventions that we had implemented, and that definitely increased the number. It essentially uh, doubled the number of interventions that we suggested and also the number of interventions that we implemented. So in terms of answering our original question as to whether a systems-oriented M&M improves the way that we uh, review adverse events and the way that we respond to adverse events, this results uh, in our mind definitely say yes, that we did improve those two things. Why do you think attendance at the M&Ms increased so much after you changed the structure? And who, who attended the meetings? Was there a difference in terms of who was present? So attendance doubled before versus after implementation. We don't think that this was due to a change in M&M schedule or a change in the process of inviting participants because that was all the same for before and after. We sent an email out every week before every M&M to all the PICU staff, and that was the same process that we used from before. We really thought that the increase in attendance was because of increased engagement of the staff. The initial increase, maybe for the first two or three conferences after the systems-oriented M&M came into place, but maybe due to the novelty of the project, people being curious to see what, what, what that was about. However, the entire time that we were collecting data, this attendance increase was sustained all throughout the 10 M&Ms after implementation. So long after you would expect the novelty of the process to wear off, we still had increased attendance. The diversity of participants also increased before 90% of attendees were physicians. And after, 50% were physicians and then 35% were nurses. And the rest are pharmacists, RTs, ECMO specialists, composed of the different people that work in our PICU. So definitely diversity got better as well. Can you give us some examples of the kinds of adverse events and improvement interventions that were suggested through this process? Most of the adverse events that we had identified were communication and medication errors, uh, which is not surprising since this parallels the most common errors that are usually reported through voluntary systems of reporting. These are really the same categories of errors that we find most frequently in incident reporting systems, for example. What's interesting is that later on, after we had implemented the systems-oriented M&M, more communication errors were reported and fewer medication errors were being reported through them, were being discussed through the M&M. We thought that it was because communication errors are essentially much more complex incidents or problems with a lot of like system issues behind it that need to be addressed, whereas usually medication errors can be fixed a little bit easier with change in workflow or a change in, in ordering. So we thought that people were recognizing that 
they didn't want to waste precious M&M discussion time discussing a straightforward error. So we were getting more and more complex adverse events as time wore on. Another thing that I wanted to point out, although during the time frame that we had looked at when we did this study, there was only one diagnostic error that was discussed during this time. Um, retrospectively, from all of our previous M&Ms, diagnostic errors are very commonly discussed, which I think is interesting because we had done a, prior, a study prior to this looking at the different types of errors that are being reported through incident reporting versus chart review versus the M&M. And really, diagnostic errors don't appear at all in chart <laughs> reviews, of course. Uh-huh. <laughs> we can imagine why. And, yeah. uh, and they don't really come up in incident reporting. Most of the incident reports are actually put in by nurses and RTs and people more at the bedside consistently. I think it's mostly physicians that report diagnostic errors. And in our case, they reported it through our M&M. Which is very interesting to me because I think of diagnostic errors as the redheaded stepchild of medical errors. People have really ignored this. It's not because it's not low hanging fruit. Right. It's right. not like medication errors or hospital acquired infections that would be more straightforward to tackle. Now we know a lot more about diagnostic errors that they're both caused not just by cognitive failings of physicians or clinicians, but also because of a lot of systems issues like mm-hmm. testing issues right, or reporting right. issues. So this is one of the one of the interesting finding our interesting findings is that the M and M is a way to bring this out. You asked me also about what types of interventions we implemented, and essentially it really did depend on what the adverse events were. At the end of the project, 60% of our interventions were completed, 20% were ongoing, and 20% were still in the planning phase. The interventions can be easy if it's a pharmacy problem or an IT problem, even though it might feel like forever for EMR changes to occur. It actually was a lot faster than trying to figure out problems with teamwork or communication. Those are harder problems to tackle, especially when there are groups outside of the PICU that are involved. For example, we've had some problems with rapid responses to the trauma bay or the emergency room. And since it's not just the PICU system that you're trying to change and you're trying to change somebody else's system, that's what makes it hard to Uh um, get those interventions in place. For each intervention, we always did have assigned personnel. Sometimes it's easy because, you know, if it's a pharmacy thing, we we were very lucky to have a very good PICU pharmacist who worked with us at that time, and she was basically on top of everything. So any pharmacy event, she would spearhead. Other things are a lot harder to find people to work on them. Like I said, the, the teamwork and communication problems needed to be turned, sometimes needed to be turned into a full QI project. And those are most of the things that were still ongoing or still in the planning phase at the time that we ended data collection. What advice do you have for other PICUs who may be interested in implementing a systems-oriented morbidity and mortality conference? And perhaps more importantly, how do you sustain this kind of effort? Yeah, so these these are actually difficult questions. I do think that the characteristics of the systems-oriented M&M that I enumerated, you know, the, the, the different function, the structure, the multidisciplinary character of it, they all have to be in place for, for you to call your M&M a systems-oriented M&M. I think that those are musts. 
aside from that, I do think that like any quality improvement intervention, it has to be adapted to your setting. I can give you an example. For our case at Hopkins, we never really needed to worry about case selection because we were a very high reporting group. I think that compared to other units in the hospital at that time, our PQ had a very high number of incident reports reported per month compared to the other units, not necessarily because we were making more mistakes. At least I like to think so. We weren't making more mistakes, but because people (laughs) were reporting them more often. So in terms of having cases to present at M&M, it it wasn't really a problem. We usually had more cases than we can, if we had time to present. But for other places, especially in places with a more underdeveloped culture of safety, I can foresee that this can be a problem if nobody brings or volunteers cases for for, for presentation. In that case, what I would probably do is, aside from always encouraging people to volunteer cases, because I think the nicest cases are the ones that are volunteered, because these are people who've already thought about possible changes that they would make. But aside from that, I think it's important to have case selection criteria in place certain situations or red flags that would be ripe for errors, such as, you know, all mortalities can be one, or readmissions to the PICU, these bounce backs might be associated with adverse events, or any child that had CPR performed on them while in the unit might be cases that are worth discussing. Another example that I can think of in terms of translating this work to other PICUs is when I moved to the University of Iowa. When I moved here, they asked me to set up a systems-oriented M&M, but what I quickly realized was that folks were really reluctant to let go of the traditional M&M structure. They liked being able to look at all of the autopsies that we've had for all of our mortalities. The pathology group here is amazing and would present all of the autopsies to us. They were reluctant to give up the literature review that the fellows presented for difficult management or diagnostic cases. So... In in the end, what happened was we ended up instituting a hybrid version of the traditional and the systems-oriented M&M. So for mortalities, we would go the more traditional route where we would have specific questions that are answered by literature and the autopsy. And then for the morbidities, the cases with adverse events, we would present it using the learning from defects tool. And that's worked out very well for us. The difference really is that we had much more time to discuss both types of cases because our volume is not as high as as it was in Hopkins. In Hopkins, there was a completely separate conference that just discussed management. Uh, It's more educational that just discussed management and diagnosis for, for interesting cases. So that was one way that I was able to adapt the systems-oriented M&M for Iowa. You had also asked about challenges and sustainability I do think that sustainability will always be an issue for any QI intervention. The importance of a champion cannot be overemphasized. There has to be one person with the fire in their belly who will make sure that this project will continue. And if that person does leave, there has to be an identified person to pass the torch to. I think it's really important to have that one champion that's present. Another challenge is the time and effort that is involved. I talked a lot about how that M&M core group really needed to work very hard all the time, really, preparing for the M&M. I do think that if the M&M is valued by leadership and administration, it should be viewed as something that is our obligation to do, much like rounding 
<laughs> in the PQ is something we need to do. <laughs> it's just part of our work to be able right. to deliver the high-quality care that we want to deliver. And if the M&M is valued enough and seen as a really strong vehicle for improving safety, then viewing it as such, I think, should come with the specified time for people to actually do that work. And a lot of that, a lot of that has to do with how leadership and administration view it. One of the more frequent questions that I get asked since I started doing this work is from people who would want to start a systems-oriented M&M in their unit, but they feel that they're not ready. And by not ready, what I gather from that, whether they say so explicitly or implicitly, is that they feel that the safety culture isn't there. When we did a survey, a national survey of PICUs looking at M&M conferences and how they conducted that, there were actually some, uh, some, a good number of PICUs with no M&M conference at all. And these were mostly private PICUs who have not had neither the time nor the resources to, to have one. And a lot of the questions that I've gotten is whether, you know, what would be, when would be the best time to do, to start a systems-oriented M&M in places where, you know, looking at safety issues is not as highly valued or, you know, the culture isn't there. I don't think there's a, there's a perfect time. I think that starting the M&M might be the catalyst that you need to be able to improve or develop your safety culture. What I would do in those cases would be to start small and maybe discuss straightforward events first, and which is a central tenet for quality improvement work anyway. You have to have that easy win in the beginning to be able to show people that, hey, this process can work, and slowly build on that and discuss more complex cases after people are more comfortable with the process. So I would really encourage everyone to see how the systems-oriented M&M can fit into their unit. You've really given us a lot of great information and helpful advice on how to reconsider the structure of one's M&M conference. Do you have any additional comments you'd like to make? Oh, well, uh, for one, I'd like to thank you, Margaret, and also the Society for inviting me to speak today. I think that it's really important for our society and its journals to review, publish, and support QI and safety research in the ICU. I do think that healthcare delivery research in the ICU, particularly in the pediatric ICU, is underdeveloped and need and we really need more rigorous work to be done and published so that we can fill that gap. I do think that QI research can be generalizable and that we need this type of research to support our local QI and safety work the same way that bench and clinical research supports our clinical practice. So I think it has really a big potential into improving outcomes for our patients the same way that bench and clinical research does. Well, thank you very much, Tina. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you as well. And thanks for joining us. We have been speaking today with Dr. Christina Sifra from the University of Iowa about the article, Transforming the Morbidity and Mortality Conference to Promote Safety and Quality in a Pediatric Intensive Care Unit, published in the January 2016 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Mark your calendar to attend the 45th Critical Care Congress to be held February 20th to 24th, 2016 in Orlando, Florida, USA.
This five-day event will bring together more than 6,000 members of the critical care community from around the world and will offer opportunities to share creative and stimulating ideas, make valuable connections, and obtain inspired perspectives. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Margaret Parker, M.D., MCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.